0: I should like to call your attention this morning to the last three verses in the Gospel according to St. Matthew. The Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 28, verses 18, 19, and 20. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. I want to emphasize particularly that 18th verse. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power or all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. I want to consider with you, in other words, this uh, whole great question of authority. Because it uh, seems to me more and more, that perhaps the most urgent problem confronting the Christian Church today is this very question, this problem of authority. Now, there are many reasons why we should consider that. One obvious reason is this, that uh, speaking very generally at any rate in this country, the masses of people are outside the Christian Church, and the Christians are but a remnant. And therefore the question that must present itself to us is this. Why is it that the church no longer can commend the attention and the interest of such people? There was a time when it was very different. And there is no doubt that the only real answer to that question is this whole matter of authority. The church has lost her note of authority, and the average person today takes up the attitude that he is not going to listen because there's nothing in this. He doesn't come to him with this authority which uh, demands and insists upon receiving his attention. And that, therefore, in and of itself, is a sufficient reason for considering it. But there is another reason, and perhaps uh, this is uh, still more urgent. There is... Uh, at the same time, in the world today, uh, a curious and a very interesting revival of interest in religion. And uh, this is where the whole question of authority, I say, arises most acutely. For it is a fact that there is a great new interest in many respects in religion speaking generally. We hear a great deal about uh, successes accompanying certain great evangelistic efforts, but we don't always hear about an equal success, if not greater, in various other religions. There is a marked revival in the world today in Buddhism. They report phenomenal increases, not only in India, but in other lands, Buddhism, Buddhism, is aggressive at the present time and militant and highly successful. The same applies, in a sense, uh, to various forms of Judaism and uh, a revival in the old Jewish religion. And then we are well aware of the success of many cults and many uh, types of religions. I needn't specify their names. We are familiar with many of them. They are succeeding. They are increasing in number. And thus we are confronted by this extraordinary phenomenon of a great revival of interest in religion, and alas, unfortunately, one feels constrained to say that there is a a great deal of what passes even under the name of Christianity, which I fear uh, should rarely be classified as religion and not Christianity. Because it seems to be a Christianity without Christ. It seems to be a vague desire to be blessed by God. And somehow or another to safeguard one's future by being in relationship to God. But it doesn't seem to be New Testament Christianity. Though it calls itself Christianity. Well now I say that in the light of all these things, nothing is more important than this whole question of authority. Here we are, as it were, one voice amidst this veritable babel of vices that is preaching and propagating various teachings and various types of religion. And people are asking, well, how do I know that yours is right? Why do you claim that yours alone is the right one? Why shouldn't we agree that there are many ways of arriving at God, and that perhaps Buddhism is as good as your Christianity? How how are we to know? How do we confront such a situation? What is our authority? What is our sanction? And of course it becomes still more important when we realize this, that the history of the great revivals and religious movements in the past shows very clearly that at such times the church has always spoken with a great voice and tone of authority. It hasn't been a vague suggestion or a vague surmise. The Christian pulpit has not approached uh, the congregation and the people in a kind of spirit of fear and uh, afraid to lose them and doing everything therefore to attract them and to entice them and to hold them, but rather it has confronted them with a voice of authority. And they have been convicted and converted. There is no doubt, I say, that uh, the most urgent and acute uh, problem therefore in many senses today is this whole question of authority? And of course it's uh, another reason why it's important is this That so many people who imagine that they're Christians and who seem to have gone on all right for years when they find themselves in trial or in trouble, or when they come across another teaching that they'd never heard of before, they're they're shaken and they don't know where they are. They haven't really a foundation to their position. There are so many who seem to regard it as just a question of obtaining a certain amount of help here and there, but who've never come face to face with the bedrock of their whole position. And the result is, as the scriptures tell us, they're carried about by every wind of doctrine, and the cunning craftiness of men, and so on, and thus they end by making shipwreck of their faith. Well, now there, as I see it, is the the world situation at the present time, particularly as regards the Christian church. There is an interest in religion, but the vital question confronting us is, is this true Christianity? Now then, that brings us to this vital matter of authority. What is our authority? What is our final, our ultimate sanction? For all we say and for all we claim. Now, in a very remarkable manner, the Bible really deals with that very problem. Let me put it again to you in this form. Here is man in this world confronted and baffled by problems and difficulties and perplexities. He's got a sense within him that things are not as they ought to be. He wishes for something better. Though he doesn't perhaps uh, say it in words and is not prepared to grant it intellectually, he's got a sense of God within him. And he feels that somehow there is some power or some person that could help. Hence the success of religion in the types I've described and of the various cults. But the question is, how can men know God, how can men arrive at this knowledge of God that he fundamentally feels he stands in need of? Well, he tries to do so in various ways. Some believe that it can be done in an intuitive manner, almost an instinctive manner. These are the people who talk about the inner light and about some sinking into yourself and having a mystical experience. They've tried that approach. There are others who try it along the line of reason and of wisdom. They observe uh, God and the marks of God in nature and in history. They say that God speaks in conscience and, and along the line of thought and of philosophy. They try to find God. Now all this is but man's endeavor and attempt to get at some ultimate, final authority for his life and for a sure belief in God. But all this, still as it always has throughout the centuries, ultimately leads to nothing but failure. You can try all these various ways and in the end, you will come back to the conclusion of the wise men who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Wisdom doesn't solve the problem. Pleasure doesn't. Art and culture don't. There is still something lacking, something still that a man needs. And the same applies to reason. For as Paul tells the Corinthians, the world by wisdom knew not God. One can't get there, and of course it's inevitable, because God is eternal and God is holy and God is absolute in all his attributes, and man is not only weak and finite, but he is sinful, and therefore by all his striving and efforts, it doesn't matter whether it's through intellect or the denial and abnegation of intellect, he can never get there. There is this impassable gulf, and man is left wondering and just querying. And that brings him to realize that what he needs above everything else is revelation. He cannot arrive at God. God must reveal himself. And if God doesn't reveal himself, well, then man is in an utterly and entirely hopeless position. Well, now, the whole case of the Bible is that God has revealed himself. And here is our authority. But the question arises, how has God revealed himself? And that brings us to the first great answer to this whole matter of authority. Our final authority is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now the whole Christian position rarely comes to that. And it is because, as I'm suggesting, that so many seem to me to leave that unsaid or to take it for granted or fail to assert it, that this needed authority is so lacking. There is so much religion without Christ, so much Christianity without Christ even, and yet the whole purpose of this book is to say that Christianity is Christ. We are confronted by this, and if we are not clear about this, we've got no authority at all and no position. Something unique has happened in the history of this world, and that something is the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our whole position, our entire situation, Depends upon him. And if we are not clear about him, we have nothing at all. We preach the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our only authority. He is our ultimate, our final authority. And what I want to try to do this morning is to show you that that is really the great message of the New Testament. Now it may astound you that I'm putting it in that form. You may say to me, well, surely you needn't tell us that. We are Christian people and we've always known that. We've read our Bibles, we've read the New Testament in particular, and obviously we know that. And yet I'm putting it to you that uh, that is the thing which we so constantly forget and of which we are not aware as we should be aware. It seems to me that our trouble is that we cannot somehow put ourselves back in the position of these first Christians. If we could only do that and this morning, as it were, forget everything else and just come back to this with a virgin mind and a new and a fresh understanding and outlook, we would be rather surprised and astonished. We would see ourselves confronted by the person. Now, isn't it true to say of us, most of us, if not all of us, that we are constantly in danger of forgetting him? We want some particular thing always. And so we come to the house of God, and not so much expecting to meet with Jesus Christ as expecting to have our grief assuaged, expecting to have a word of comfort, expecting to forget a problem. It's quite natural, it's very human, and thank God the gospel of Jesus Christ does all those things. Yes, but you see, it does them only in and through him. So that if we came seeking him, we would have all these other things in addition. But it is possible, alas, to have these other things without him. Hence the success of these other movements. Why do you think people become Buddhists unless they derive some benefit from it? They do. They are convinced that they are finding peace, that they are finding answers to certain of their problems and of their questions. That is why these other cults are succeeding. That is why religion is, in a sense, popular. People say, you know, I like to feel that I'm in the hands of God. Well, you needn't be a Christian to say that. An Orthodox Jew can say it, a Hindu can say it, a Mohammedan can say it, and all these religions are saying it, and they're adding to their numbers, and they're militant and aggressive, and they're succeeding amazingly, and religion is popular. People say in a world like this that is so uncertain, and with the things that are threatening us, we need to be blessed by God. And so they say, we must believe in God, and we must pray to God and wait upon God. And they believe they're getting all that. But the Lord Jesus Christ is not mentioned at all. But you see, when you come back to the New Testament, the thing that strikes you at once is that it's the Lord Jesus Christ himself that is being held before us. And the whole message is not about the benefits of religion, but this person. You start objectively forgetting yourself altogether, and you just look at him. And it's because of a relationship into which you come with him that you then begin to derive your various blessings and benefits. Well, now then, let me try to show you, just to remind you this morning hurriedly, of how the New Testament asserts all this. It's an astounding thing, you know, but the New Testament is about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not religion. It isn't a book of religion. It is a book that introduces us to the person and tells us how we can come to know him. And then goes on to tell us of the consequences of that knowledge. But I say it is no. there is no value at all and there is no point in considering anything else until we realize this morning that we are solely dependent upon him. If this message concerning Jesus of Nazareth is not true, well then I say we might as well be Buddhists or Zionists or anything else you may like to choose. It is the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is, of course, the great theme of this New Testament. Let me show it to you. You open at the beginning of the New Testament in this gospel according to St. Matthew, and the first word you read is this, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. That's it. You come to this book and you say, well, now I'm not very happy and things are going against me, and I'm in trouble and I've tried everything else, but I'm not deriving satisfaction. What does this mean? Christian church got to say, can you help me with this or with that? And here's the answer. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. It at once holds you face to face with a person. Mark does exactly the same thing. Listen. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You go on to the gospel according to St. Luke. What you find? Well, after his little introduction, he begins to tell you about some amazing angel visitation. And certain words that are spoken. You go on to your gospel according to St. John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And you see at once you're taken out of the realm of your subjectivity. And yourself and your problems and alarms. And you're looking at this person. Now the gospels, you see, don't do that kind of thing accidentally. This is their whole message. It was the thing that brought the Christian church into being. It was the sole preaching and message of the apostles. The apostles, the first preachers of the gospel, didn't simply go around the world saying, you know, we've got hold of a marvelous idea. We've got the answer to the problems, the solution to all the questions. Listen to this. No, no. They went around and they preached that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Lord of glory. That was their message. They were preaching this person and their announcement was that this stupendous thing had happened, that God hath visited and redeemed his people. They said it's this person that matters. It isn't a new religion we are propagating. It isn't a new philosophy. We are here as bearers of glad tidings. We are announcers of events in history. And they held before the people this person. Now I want to show you how all this is the thing that is emphasized right through the New Testament. You remember that at the very beginning, that when the angel visited Joseph and told him what was going to happen, he quoted to him these words, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Immanuel, which being interpreted, is God with us. Now that's the thing that they start with. And as I say, this is the thing that you will find in the introductions of every single gospel here in the New Testament, because this was the message. God with us, no longer a man teaching a religion, propagating a point of view, but that God has acted, as intervened in time, and has sent his only begotten Son into the world. And therefore, what these portraits set out to do is to give us portraits of the Son of God, to establish this fact of the Incarnation. And then, when you go on to the Gospel according to St. Luke, you will find in exactly the same way that the angel that visited Mary said exactly the same thing. He talks to her about this holy thing that is to be conceived in her and that of his kingdom there shall be no end. That's the announcement they're making and they want us to understand it at the very beginning. They seem to be saying to us, look here, there's no point in your reading any further unless you come face to face with this person. Look at that babe, do you realize who he is? And so the angels that disturbed the shepherds in the field that night, you remember, they said that they had brought tidings of great joy, uh, for unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Still the same message. And they put all this in the very forefront of their message, because, of course, they are anxious that we should just stand face to face with this. If you're going to read my book, says John, in the same way, I want you to realize that it's not a book about religion. It's a book about the Word of God that was with God from the beginning, but that was made flesh. And my message, he says, is just this, that no man hath seen God at any time but the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him, he hath led him forth, he has manifested him, he has spoken him. It's all about Jesus Christ, as he says, summing it up at the very end of his book. These things, he says, are written, I haven't told you everything. He says, if I told you everything, the world wouldn't be great enough to contain the books that should have to be written. But these things are written that he might know that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing these things, he might have life through his name. You see, all along, they're telling us that it's about this person. Why? Well, there's no Christianity apart from him. We have no authority at all. I can't answer the Christian scientists. I can't answer Jehovah's Witnesses. I can't answer the Buddhists, nor any of these people, except on these grounds, that here is the Son of God. So I come back and I see that these Gospels were obviously designed to do them. They're not mere records written anyhow. They're written with a definite and specific end, and that is to hold Jesus Christ before us. And so, having introduced themselves in that way, they then all go on to tell us about John the Baptist, the great forerunner of Jesus Christ that amazing men that dwelt out there in the wilderness, eating his locusts and wild honey. And he preached in such an amazing manner that many, listening to him, began to speak to one another and to say, Is not this the Christ? They said, We've never heard a man like this before. Didn't you see the fire in his eyes? Didn't you feel it in his burning words? This, they said, must be the Christ, the long-expected prophet of whom Moses spoke. And how careful are these evangelists to tell us this, that John the Baptist turned upon the people and said, I am not the Christ. I am but a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. I am not he. He is coming. There standeth one among you whom ye know not. He is the one. John points to him. Everything points to him. And how careful are the evangelists to tell us that and to hold us face to face with it. But you see, they go beyond that. They all are very careful to tell us about his baptism, and not so much that they may tell us about the baptism, as that they may tell us what happened at the baptism. For there, as he came out of the water, you remember, the Holy Ghost descended upon him in the form of a dove. But beyond that there came a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased there it is what are we talking about these men seem to be saying we are talking about one who has been authenticated by a voice from heaven this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased again the transfiguration they all tell us about it that's what they're concerned to say again the voice came from heaven saying this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased hear him It's all about him, because he is our final authority. And without him we have no message, we have no faith, we have no final belief. Well now there, you see, is but the introduction to these Gospels. But then go on and listen as they tell us about our Lord's own teaching. And you will find again that they go on asserting this self-same point you listen to the Lord Jesus Christ and you find that he talks about himself. And he talks about himself in an extraordinary manner. He says without any hesitation, no man knoweth the Father but the Son, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Always this separation, always this standing apart. He doesn't hesitate to say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He doesn't hesitate to say, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, but I say unto you, this I. He emphasizes it. He stands before them and he's always saying, look at me. And do you remember how he ended his Sermon on the Mount with these words? Every one therefore which heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them shall be likened unto a man that built his house upon a rock. Every man that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened to a man that built his house upon the sand. It's my sayings. Heaven and earth shall pass away, he says, but my words shall not pass away. Here's the authority, the authority of this person, Jesus of Nazareth. And as you work through your Gospels, and it's something we should do constantly, and keep your eye on this, you will find that all the time he is asserting his authority and commanding people to listen. And then he works his miracles. What are they? Well, they're signs, says the Gospel according to St. John. He didn't work his miracles merely to perform acts of kindness. This sign. He did them to authenticate his person. He did them to prove to the people who he was. So he turns to them and says, if he believe not my words, believe me for the very work's sake. Look at my works. Behold the miracle. And supremely he doesn't hesitate to assert that he has power and authority to forgive sins. And there was nothing that annoyed the Pharisees more than that. They said, who can forgive sins but God alone? And yet he says, son, thy sins be forgiven. He stands and he claims this authority. And what's so interesting is that the Gospels tell us that the people recognize this authority. That was the very impression that was made upon them. We are told that when he finished his Sermon on the Mount, the people looked at one another and they said, this, men, teach us with authority And not as the Pharisees and scribes. They said, we've never heard this before. We've always heard people saying, Hillel said this, Gamaliel said that. This father said this and they quoted them and their subdivisions and the exact references. And they spent the whole time in quoting authorities. Here is one without a book, as it were, and who doesn't quote anybody, but says, I say unto you. The authority of the Son of God. They felt it and they were conscious of it. And you remember that on one occasion the authorities sent some soldiers to arrest him. They said, we must put an end to this. And the soldiers went, but they came back without the prisoner. And they were challenged by the authorities who said, where is your prisoner? And all they could say is this, never man speak like this man. We couldn't touch him, they seemed to say. We couldn't get near him. There was an authority. There was something about him. They felt it. And have you noticed that almost every time he performed a miracle, we are told the same thing? The people glorified God. They were filled with a sense of amazement and of utter astonishment. They said, we have seen strange things today. They magnified God. They looked at him and they felt, this is beyond men, what is it? And indeed, these Gospels are careful to record that even the devils acknowledged his authority. You remember that poor man of Gadara that was filled with a legion of devils. When the devils saw Christ approaching, they said, What are we to do with thee, thou Son of God? Art thou come to destroy us before our time? Others they said, other times they said, We know who thou art, the holy Son of God. They recognized, they felt, the devils believed and trembled. And, you know, his very enemies recognized it and felt it. They realized that he claimed to be the Son of God. And thus there is this universal testimony. The disciples, after much hesitation and fumbling, they come to see it. So that when our Lord turns to them at Caesarea Philippi and says, But whom say ye that I am? Peter answers for them, saying, Thou art the Christ the son of the living God. And then he tells them on another occasion as people were leaving him because of his message, they'd followed him and they'd listened to him and they'd said, who can stand these things? And they were leaving him in large numbers. And our Lord turned to the disciples and he said, will ye also go away? And the only answer they could give was this, to whom shall we go? To whom can we go? Thou hast the words of everlasting life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And there it is, the whole emphasis, you see, is upon the person. The whole thing comes to this. Either the Son of God has come on earth to save us, or else he hasn't. And then they go on, all of them, to record the resurrection. They are careful to give us the details about his death upon the cross and his burial in the grave in order that they may tell us about this amazing fact of the resurrection. There it is, he died, he was buried, the stone was rolled at the face of the grave and yet it's gone and he's risen and he has appeared, Christ and the resurrection. They went round and that is what they preached. Jesus, Son of God, risen from the dead. Jesus and the resurrection. Now, the point you see I'm making all along is just this. Are these the things that are most central in our minds? Christian people, are these the things about which you meditate? Or do you spend your time in thinking about your own happiness and your own experience? You know, these books tell you to look at him. They say, there he is. You realize what's happened. That was the apostolic message. That was apostolic preaching. Jesus, here's the authority, the only authority. He's risen from the dead, and therefore he is the Son of God, declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. And so they are careful to tell us that poor Thomas, who doubted it all and couldn't believe it, when he saw him, he fell at his feet and cried, saying, My Lord and my God. He worshipped him, and all, we are told, the other disciples did the same thing. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And then they tell us of his ascension. And how those disciples stood there on that mountain, saw him going back to heaven. My friends, this is Christianity. This is the whole essence. God hath visited and redeemed his people. And then you go on to the book of the Acts of the Apostles and you're confronted by that tremendous thing that happened on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem. The Holy Ghost fell upon these men and they were transformed and transfigured and began to preach with a new boldness and a new authority. What was the message? Jesus is the Christ, Jesus the Son of God, Jesus the Saviour of the world, none other name under heaven given amongst men, whereby we must be saved. The exclusiveness of this message pointing to him. What is this? Well, this is nothing but a fulfillment of a prophecy. That was made by the Lord himself. Do you remember how he told these disciples, It is expedient for you that I go not away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I go away, he will come unto you. And then he tells them, And when he is come, he shall reprove or convince, convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of uh, righteousness, because I go unto the Father, and the world seeth me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. What does all this mean? Well, sometimes, you know, I'm afraid we misinterpret those statements. And we think it just means this, that the Holy Spirit convinces us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He does. But, you know, it means much more than that. It means this. The coming of the Holy Ghost upon the church on the day of Pentecost is the final assertion that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what he said himself. He shall convict the world of sin. In what respect? Well, because it hasn't believed in me. I have confronted them with a the statement that I am the Son of God. And that though they kill me, I would rise again. They didn't believe me. I have risen again. I said that when I had risen again, I would send the comfort of the Holy Ghost. I am sending the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Here is the proof of my words. I am the Son of God. He convicts the world of sin, the sin of unbelief. The coming of the Holy Ghost is the final proof that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. Come into this world, and therefore we have this long account of it in the second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And in the same way, he convicts the world of righteousness because he has established this. That it is he alone that can make men righteous. That is why he died. That is why he bore the sins of men and their punishment. That is why he went to the cross and suffered it all and expired. And his body was taken down and buried in a grave. Here is God's way of righteousness. How do I know it? Well, he's risen again and he sent the Spirit. All these things are but attestations of his person. And in exactly the same way, he convinces the world of judgment, convicts it. He has defeated the devil. The prince of this world, he says, is already judged. On the cross he put him to an open shame. Rising again he proved that he defeated him. He is stronger than the strong man armed. He has robbed him of his authority. He has the authority. So the Holy Spirit coming on the church convicts the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment by establishing that he is, as he said, the only begotten Son of God. That's his authority. And now these apostles filled with this Holy Spirit go out and preach in the name of Christ. And so the book of Acts opens with these words. The former things, O Theophilus, have I written unto you of the things that Jesus began to do. What's he going to write about now? He's going to write about the things that Jesus continued to do. There are some people who say the book of Acts should be called not the book of the Acts of the Apostles, but the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. I think both are wrong. It is the book of the continuing action of Christ. Here are the things that Jesus continued. I've told you what he began. He's going on. And therefore you read your book of Acts and you look at him and you feel his authority. Peter preached him on the day of Pentecost. And then you remember the next day Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray at the hour of prayer, and they see a man impotent from his mother's womb sitting at the beautiful gate of the temple. And he looked at them expecting to receive alms of them. They hadn't got any to give, but Peter and John, looking steadfastly upon him, said, Silver and gold have I none. What then? But such as I have give I thee. Well, what is this? Here it is. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he arose, And stood upon his feet and went leaping and jumping and praising God into the temple. And the people came and looked at Peter and John and were ready to fall at their feet and to worship them. And Peter and John say, why look ye on us? As if by our own strength or power or authority we had made this man to walk. Or had given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. His name. That's it. It's the only explanation. His name, by faith in his name, hath given him this perfect soundness. It's Christ that's acting. And then, you see, as they go on preaching him, the authorities try to stop them. And they say, we cannot but speak of the things which we have seen and heard. Jesus, his preaching, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, the Holy Ghost, the things which we have seen and heard. There is none other name under heaven given amongst men, whereby we must be saved, the name of Jesus. And so, you see, the book of Acts is the book of the actions of Jesus Christ. He had said, hadn't he, on this rock, I will build my church. He is the builder of the church. It is his action in the book of Acts. It isn't the building of the apostles. It isn't the building of the Holy Ghost as such. It's Christ doing it all through them. He's building the church, so follow him. See him arresting Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. It's the risen Lord that does it. It's still the same authority, the same person. Have you met him? Do you know him? Are you interested in Christianity or in Christ? Have you some subjective sensations? Or have you come into the presence of the Lord? That's the question. There is so much religion, I say, but he isn't there. They don't mention him. They don't speak about him. They're speaking about thrills and feelings and excitements. But it's the Lord that matters. And so you go on and listen to Peter preaching in the household of Cornelius. And this is what he says, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And Saul of Tarsus become Paul, is preaching but he's in trouble and the Jews are against him and he goes to the temple and Jesus appears to him and sends him to the Gentiles. It's always the Lord Jesus Christ. My time has gone, but I could take you in the same way right through the epistles and you'd find they're all saying the same thing. They're always talking about the Lord. And you know this word, the Lord, it's a designation of divinity. Do you know that when he's referred to as the Lord, it means the Old Testament term Jehovah? That's the one they're speaking about. That's the one they're writing about. Who am I writing about, says Paul? Well, here's my answer. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's the message that God hath visited and redeemed his people. It's the great message of the incarnation who was in the form of God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God but humbled himself and made himself of no reputation and came in the form of a man and being in the likeness of men humbled himself and took on him the form of a servant and humbled himself even to the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. That's the message. Jesus, men, dead, buried, risen, Lord ascended seated at the right hand of God far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but in the world to come that's the message who is he? well says Paul he is the Lord of glory and that is Christianity that is the Christian message that is the Christian faith It's our only authority. It's God come down amongst us, the person of the Son. And he has dwelt amongst us. And he has come to redeem us. And he's risen and he's gone back. And his authority is based therefore upon those three things that I've been indicating to you. His authority is the authority of the eternal Son of God. His authority is the authority of the one who came down and took unto him human nature and bore our sins and bore their punishment. Therefore, he says, I have the keys of death and of hell. And he is the only way to God, the authority of the Redeemer and the finished work of redemption. And it is the authority of the one who, because he has done all these things, He is seated at this moment at the right hand of God, waiting until his enemies shall be made his footstool. Yes, here it is. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had purged all our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And there he is at this very moment with all authority in heaven and in earth Sitting, waiting until his enemies shall be made his footstool. The government is in his hands. He's opened the books. He's the controller of history. He's working to a plan and he'll finish it. There is a day coming when he will return again and judge the world in righteousness and appointed to every man his eternal destiny. And it will all be in terms of our relationship to him. It won't help you to say that morning, I always believed in God and prayed to God and waited upon him. That's not the question. God has committed it all to the Son. It's the Son who judges. It's the Son who determines everything. He hath appointed a day in which he shall judge the whole world in righteousness by this man whom he hath appointed, whereof he hath given notice in that he raised him from the dead. He has the authority. He is the authority. So I take leave to ask you this question as I'm privileged to resume my ministry and to stand in this pulpit again. Is your everything in Christ? Do you base all on him? Are you seeking everything in him? Are you seeking God through him? You'll never find God except in him. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. My dear friends, I have a fear that it's true of all of us. That we are trying to find God and seeking blessings and forgetting him. God forbid that I should continue in this place preaching anything or anybody save Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Lord of glory. The only way to God. The only authority. The only sanction for our belief. It's all in him. If we're not right here, we're wrong everywhere. If we're right here, we're right everywhere. Is he your all and in all? Is he the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega? Are you looking only unto him? Look only unto him. Turn away from everybody and everything else. Keep your eyes steadfastly gazing upon him. These books invite you to do that. The whole of the Old Testament is looking forward to him. The gospel set him before you. The Acts and the, ep- and the Epistles look back to him. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior of the world, he and he alone. Is he the center with you? There is no salvation. There is no knowledge of God. There is nothing apart from him. For in him God is treasured up. All the treasures of his grace and his wisdom and his love. Oh, that we realize this morning the unsearchable riches of Christ go to him. And you will have more than you've ever desired, more than you can ever contain. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. Godhead. Amen.